We're going to read our scripture lesson this morning, but I want to set the stage for you just so that you know how to hear it. So right before this passage that we are going to read today, Jesus has just asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And his disciples have shared the various popular wrong answers. People say you're John the Baptist. People say you're Elijah. People say you're Jeremiah. And Jesus says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter has one of those moments. One of those moments when all of a sudden you realize something that you've actually known all along. And he is astonished as everyone else to hear his own voice say, you are the Messiah. You are the son of God. And Jesus has brought them to this place for this moment. And when Peter says that, Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because you didn't figure this out for yourself. You didn't learn it from the world around you. You got this truth straight from the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus gives Peter, uh, Simon, a new name, Peter, which means rock. And because Jesus, because in that moment, Simon has discovered that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and discovering that truth changes you. And so Simon gets a new name, Peter, to go along with this new identity. And Jesus says to him, I'm calling you Peter because you're the rock on which I'm building my church and hell itself cannot conquer you. Now here's the keys. Let everyone in. That's my translation, but I stand by it. Jesus has brought them to this place for this moment. And now that the moment has come, he looks at all of them and he says, now, don't you tell anyone what you just heard for now. You are the only ones who can know. Jesus has brought them to this place for this moment and he breathes deep. And then he says, now that you know who I am, you can know my glory how I will conquer and overcome all that stands against God, how I will claim my kingdom and be crowned Lord of all. So I want you to please imagine them, these 12 ordinary men in that moment, just dazzled because no one has ever said this before. They can scarcely comprehend, but they are leaning in because they are about to hear the divine secrets of the salvation of the universe. They are about to get the insider details about how God is finally going to fulfill all of the covenant promises we read about in scripture, how God is going to liberate Israel for freedom from its oppressors and fulfill her destiny. They are about to find out how the great and terrible day of the Lord will come. Can you imagine them thinking, I cannot believe I'm here for this. I cannot believe this is happening. All the scribes, all the rabbis, all the prophets who came before me have wondered, but I am about to know. And then Jesus says to them that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed. And on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. 
And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus has brought them to this place for this moment to show his disciples the true nature of his mission. He has hinted at it before, but now he is making it plain. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am here walking among you. I have the power and the authority of Almighty God. I have come to redeem and reclaim everything that is of God, and it will happen in one glorious battle just like this. He's been leading them to this moment of revelation all along from the moment he walked past the first one and said, follow me. Through all the miracles and all the signs and all the wonders, all the public and the private teaching, it's all been leading to this place and this moment of revelation. He has literally led them to this moment so that he can confirm that, yes, he is who they've been hoping he is. And also, he absolutely is not. Now, he could have given them this revelation anywhere, but instead, he has made them take a journey. They have had to walk out of Galilee where they were. Together, they have walked from the sea 30 miles and up 1,700 feet deep into the territory of what used to belong to Israel when David was king, but has long since been lost and conquered by others, never reclaimed. And now this place is known as Caesarea Philippi. He has led them to this place for that moment. Now, if you're anything like me right now in this moment, you're like, please, please, please don't let her talk about geography. I don't care about geography. If you're anything like me, when you get to the section of the Bible study or on the screen, when they start talking about geography, you just swipe left because who cares? Who cares where it happened? You care what happened, right? But in this case, where it happened shapes and unpacks the revelation of what Jesus is saying. Jesus has been leading them to this moment and he needs it to happen exactly at this place. He's chosen it to try and help them accept what he is going to reveal to them. Now, this place is called Caesarea Philippi now, but before, the people knew it as Peneus. Long before it was a city, it was just a shrine at the base of a mountain. At the base of the mountain, and there was a cave there, and inside, out of that cave, flowed a stream, and that stream was a tributary that fed into the Jordan River. Have you ever heard of it? 
this stream came bubbling up out of a, a pit, a hole inside of this cave. And it fed, it was one of the main feeders of this entire river with all of its ancient history. And it came out of this pit that was so deep that the people understood it to be fathomless. What that means literally is they kept bringing in rope to try to measure it, but no matter how much rope, no matter how many fathoms of rope they brought in, they would drop it down into the bottom and they would never hit the bottom. It was literally bottomless to them. So I want you to imagine for centuries, these ancient people have been coming to this cave at the foot of the mountain and inside was a bottomless pit out of which flowed water, which made the desert places lush and green. So right in this plate, you have the height of the mountain and the depth of the pit and the water out of the rock making life. And it was sacred. And the Canaanite people came to that place and recognized that it was holy and they worshiped their God Baal. And the Greeks and the Romans came later and recognized it was sacred and holy ground. And they, they worshiped their God of spring, Pan. And that's why they called it Paneas until the Romans came through and they discovered it. And so Caesar conquered it and gave that land to one of his vassal king subjects, a guy named Herod. Have you heard of him? And Herod, who was king of the Jews at that time, in gratitude, built a temple to Caesar Augustus. Are you following me here? Herod, king of the Jews, the Jews of the thou shall have no other God before me covenant. Herod, their king, built a temple to his one true God, Caesar Augustus. And then when that Herod, Daddy Herod, when he dies, Caesar divides up the territory between Herod's sons, and that part of Caesar's territory, go, Herod's territory, goes to his son named Philip. And Philip builds up a huge city around this marble temple and renames it. And now the city will no longer be known as Peneus. Now, in deference to the true gods, it's called Caesarea Philippi. And Philip chooses it as his capital city, and he mints coins with pictures of the shrine of Pan on it. So this place where people have been worshiping and seeking and sensing the holy for centuries, they've been coming to this place, which is the mysterious source of life for this whole region, because water is life, and it comes from this unmeasurable depth, and whoever owns that land controls it, and that person gets to say who God is. So along with everything else, this place is a God graveyard. It is an idol factory's reject pile. It is littered with the shards of discarded altars and evidence of all the gods who used to be worshipped before. The shrines to Baal, the shrines to Pan, and for now in this moment it's a shrine to Caesar. And the current king who worships him, Philip, has renamed the place Caesarea Philippi to say, I know where power and authority truly come from, from Caesar and from me, King Philip. So Jesus takes the disciples on a field trip to that place where humans have been seeking glory and glorifying themselves for centuries and claiming divine authority and erecting monuments that go up and then pass away. And for centuries, that's been happening. And Jesus leads them to that place and says, now you can know who I am. 
I am a Messiah, the Lord, the Son of the eternal almighty God. I am the Savior of the cosmos. And now that you know, I can reveal to you the true nature of holy authority and how I am going to glorify my name. I'm going to Jerusalem. There I'm going to be rejected and betrayed and abused by the chiefs and el chief priests and elders and scribes and teachers of the law, these men of God who claim to own God's name, who claim exclusive distribution rights of the holy, they use their God-given authority to build temples to Caesar. These holy ones are going to hand me over to their true authority and power, which is Rome, and I am going to be tried and convicted by those authorities, and they will seek to destroy me. I will be killed. I will be crucified, and on the third day, raised to life. And as astonishing as it is, that Peter with one breath declares, you are the son of God. And the very next breath declares, no, no, not your way, my way. As astonishing as it is for us whose ears have been dulled by centuries of religious familiarity. If you think for a moment about those Christ followers in that moment sitting in the shadow of the cave and the mountain in the marble temple to Caesar, sitting among the rubble and litter of discarded gods, how must they have heard it? Jesus seems like he is admitting that Caesar has more power and authority than he does, more strength, that he's going to submit himself to them, be humiliated by them, not just let them think they were holy, but reinforce their terrible power by laying down his life towards them. He was going to let himself be destroyed by their power so that everything they stood for, wealth and power and cruelty and violence and suffering, all of that terrible evil would triumph and everything he stood for would be destroyed. So it is no wonder that Peter's shock and terror overwhelmed his reverence. This was a horrible thing that Jesus was saying. This was an evil plan, a plan that was going to strengthen every force they were seeking Jesus to free them from. If that was the mission to go and confront and die, Peter refused to accept it. And the truth is, church, we refuse to accept it too. What human heart can accept the horror, the humiliation, the torture and death of all your hope and all your love and everything you worship and hold as good and holy, all of it destroyed publicly on a cross? Peter refuses to accept that mission. And so Jesus says to him, get behind me. He doesn't say get away from me. He says, get behind me. Jesus is not rejecting Peter. Jesus is reorienting him. And Jesus calls him Satan because Satan tried to get Jesus to walk down this same path before he began his public ministry. Satan tried to tell him there was a way to wealth and power and glory without the cross. So it shocks us that Peter would do this thing, but it doesn't shock Jesus that Peter's expectations were formed by the world and all of its bloody broken altars 
doesn't shock Jesus that Peter cannot behold the glory of Christ except in crucifixion. Jesus says to Peter, you have to get behind me because we can only get to the cross if we are following Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter who left everything to follow Jesus, Peter who had received and proclaimed the Holy Spirit's revelation that Jesus was the Messiah, Peter who was chosen by Jesus to be the rock upon which the church is built, Jesus says to Peter what he says to all of us who love everything about Jesus except the cross, who trust Jesus with absolutely everything except the cross. Jesus says to Peter what he says to all of us who will happily do ministry for Jesus on the safe edges and periphery forever. We who will theologize the cross and think about the cross and wear the cross as jewelry, but never confront it and certainly never accept it and certainly never seek God's glory in it and through it. Jesus says to us, who also reject his mission the moment he reveals that his mission is the cross. Like Peter, we love Jesus' ministry, but we hate and fear and reject his mission. Like Adam and Eve, we say with Peter, I know you're God, but this thing you're saying, it can't be good. I don't trust you with this, Lord. Your way seems evil and cruel and arbitrary and useless. I demand from you the freedom to do what seems best in my own eyes. I will not submit to your will unless I agree and approve of it. God, you must submit all your ways to me for my approval. I will follow you only to the limit of my preference and my understanding. Peter says to Jesus in that moment, yes to your glory, but no to your cross. And Jesus says, you got to get behind me and follow me. You're a stumbling block because you don't understand. And how can you understand when you have your mind set on human things? Humans who built all of these temples, one on top of another. You're a stumbling block because you don't understand because your mind is set on human glory and your heart is warped by human ways. Built all those false altars where you've bowed down to violence and it's brutal, ugly promises. You have to put your mind and your heart on the things of God. You have to allow the Spirit to cleanse you out of your love and desire for what seems good and what seems holy and what seems right, and allow the Holy Spirit to fill your mind with the glory of God that is Christ crucified and raised again on the third day. This is the terrifying and awful glory and mystery of Jesus. Beloved, the cross is not what it appears. It is not destruction. It is salvation. Beloved, the cross is not what it appears. It is not what the world says it is, humiliation and weakness and futility. It is the place where we see the triumph of the goodness of God. Beloved ones, this is the first Sunday of Lent. And these are the days when we reset our hearts and minds on the things of God. These are the days when we get behind Jesus and allow him to lead us to the place of glory and sanctification 
And that begins by recognizing that we are a lot like our brother Peter. We say no to Jesus before we can say yes to him. We believe that Jesus is our Savior and Lord, but when he starts to think, speak about the cross, we turn away. We too want his ministry, but not his mission. We are desperate to believe that the cross is something that Jesus did, and all we have to do is believe it or feel a certain way about it in our hearts, but we never have to think about it again, and it doesn't have to have anything to do with our actual lives here and now. We are certain that all God wants us to do is know and love and believe in Jesus, but we don't have to have anything to do with his cross. We may be able to answer a question about the cross. We may be able to have an explanation for it. We may use it as a litmus test to decide who is a real follower of Jesus and who is not, but we have no other use for it in our actual lives. We're calling our worship series in these days decision because in the weeks to come, we are looking at the stories of people who encountered Jesus as he walked to the cross. Ultimately, our decision for or against Jesus, our yes or our no, is determined by the cross. Because a lot of people said yes to Jesus during his ministry. They said yes to his miracles and yes to his teaching and yes to his love, but no to his cross. And Jesus is saying here clearly, if anyone wants to come after me, you have to deny yourself pick up your cross, and follow me. And like our brother Peter, when we hear this and believe Jesus, our first response is often to say no. We want to decide for ourselves what following Jesus looks like. We want to design a way that seems more profitable, more reasonable, more admirable. We will commit to ministry about Jesus, but not to following him. We think that believing in Jesus is all that's required, and we can do that from a safe distance. We say that following Jesus might make other people have a certain idea about the cross, but Jesus says none of that. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself and all of your human concerns and pick up the cross and follow me there. Jesus says those who try to avoid the cross and save their lives actually end up losing them. But anyone who trusts me and denies themselves and picks up the cross and follows me and loses their life will actually find it. Jesus says, I am unleashing the power of salvation on this broken and brutal bleeding earth. But not in ways you've seen before. False gods who have come claiming to save but actually destroy. Not in the ways you've come to expect and even desire. I will not use my power to oppress and steal and control and kill those who stand against me. I will not use my power to build a temple that will slowly wear away. My body is the temple that reveals the glory of God. And it is raised to resurrection life, triumphant over every power of sin and evil and brokenness. Church, the world is still full of crosses and crucifixions, places where the goodness of God confronts the terror of fallen human ways. And in that confrontation, 
we see the triumph of God's glory. But we can't see God's glory if we avoid confrontation with evil. We cannot see God's glory if we appease and excuse and even condone powers and principalities of evil. We can't see the glory of God if we live a life that is shaped by our fear of death. The glory of God is revealed when we trust God enough to accept suffering that comes with confronting the powers and principalities of evil, all that steals and kills and lies, all the things that we've been told that we just have to endure and accept, especially when it's happening to someone else who doesn't look like us. We are given life in Christ so that our days and our love and our choices are shaped by our belief that the glory of God is good and triumphant. So we don't need to fear evil. We sang at the beginning of the worship service today that song, Oceans. We sang it about how God is leading us out past our comfort level to confront the mystery of the goodness of God, which is beyond our own choices. We have to allow the cross to lead us places that we would not go out into the world where we cannot depend upon ourselves, but only on the reality of the goodness of God. We have to allow the cross of Jesus Christ to lead us in a path of righteousness that is no longer limited by our fear of violence or our disgust by the sins of our siblings or even our fear of death. Because we who have heard the word of God are following Jesus to the cross so that we will see him overcome it. And this is the good news of the gospel. Wherever Jesus sends us, he goes with us. We do not face or carry the cross alone. We are never alone. And the glorious truth of the gospel is the place that we fear will destroy us. It is only in that place that we discover that God is good and God's goodness is enough for us and that the joy of the Lord is in us, but doesn't come from us.